Good morning, and uh, we're continuing our series this morning in uh, Colossians. We're coming towards, uh, I was going to say, coming to the end. Chris informs me that actually we've got a few more to go yet. But uh, our Made Simple series is mainly about sort of getting back to basics and getting our theology uh, sorted out. And uh, it's, a, it's a, great, uh, a great book to read, is Colossians. We know from what uh, we've had already in the series that uh, it was probably founded by a guy called Epaphras. And Epaphras had come to Paul in his imprisonment in Rome, probably, and uh, was, in, in fact, asking him questions about how he could be helped to sort the church out because there were problems. There were intellectual problems, there were spiritual problems and moral problems. And so Paul's response in this section that we're going to look at this morning, chapter 3, verses 1 to 17, is actually a really incredible response about the supreme and the sublime adequacy of Christ that we have. It's probably the best one in the New Testament to, to, to do that. Talking about the adequacy of Christ, I came across this story the other week about a little boy who was in an argument with his little sister, with his big sister, I should say. And it was over the last brownie. And the mother overheard this loud discussion going on in the kitchen. She came down from upstairs seeking to resolve the conflict. And uh, her two children were obviously quite distraught by this argument as to who was to have the final treat. And sensing that she needed to teach a much deeper lesson, she asked the children the ever-relevant question, what would Jesus do? The older sibling immediately answered, well, that's easy. Jesus would just take the brownie and make 5,000 more. And uh, yes, so the adequacy of Christ. Well, Paul's adequacy of Christ here, the greatness of Christ, is actually displayed in this passage. And we're thinking about particularly about holiness, holiness made simple. And there's a great quote which should be up on the, uh, the, uh, the, the pictures in a moment, which says from Billy Graham, only when we understand the holiness of God will, he un will we understand the depth of our sin. Peter says in his letter, uh, his first letter, verses 14 to 16, he talks about being obedient children, not conforming to the evil desires that we used to, uh, used to live in, in that ignorance. But just as he called us as holy, so we are to be holy in all we do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. And God's desire is that we should be a holy people. We should be more and more like Jesus and display his likeness to the world around us. But we have to be aware of counterfeit holiness. And often it revolves around cultural behavior patterns rather than God's ideal. Largely, it centers on a load of do's and do nots. When I became a Christian at age 16, I was informed that I must not smoke, drink, go dancing, go to the cinema or the pub. And the inference was that I shouldn't have really non-Christian friends. But looking back on it, I have to say that was a load of old tosh in non-biblical words, of course. It pictures us as our lives as being as Christians, as being like castles. You need to live with the moat filled, with the drawbridge up, with the portcullis lowered. At all costs, you have to keep the enemy out. But I don't believe that's the right picture of our life in this world. It should be more like an invasion force, an invasion, a move into the enemy's territory. A bit like we were hearing perhaps from Millie this morning. A front line moving forward, attacks being mounted, doing everything to defeat the enemy. Personal holiness is less about the 
the things you don't do, and more about living a life connected with God. It's not about working harder, but about resting and enjoying the victory that he's, he has given us over sin and temptation. Counterfeit, he, he, um, counterfeit holiness tends to breed hypocrisy, legalism, pride. Look at me, I'm really holy. And then you add on the extras to that statement. So Paul in chapter 3 is seeking to correct these erroneous views and give snapshots of what it really means to be living a life of holiness. And firstly, he wants us to grasp the new reality in verses 1 to 4. Let's read them together. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And there are three little uh, things we can pull out of this, this, these verses 1 to 4. And the first one in verse 3 is that we have new life in Christ. We're hidden with Christ in God. This is a powerful picture and speaks to me of security. Since we used to be in our old ways and we now have trusted in Jesus, we're in Christ. It's a phrase that Paul is often using in his letters. And uh, I think Chris has made reference to it several times. And it reminds me of those words of Jesus to his disciples in chapter 10 of John's gospel. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. And my father who has given them to me is greater than, than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. I like to picture it like this pen that I'm holding. And that's like you and me. And we are in the hand of Jesus. And Jesus says in that, uh, in, through John's gospel that his hand is in the Father's hand. And there's no way you can pull that pen out of those two hands. No sin, no temptation, no failure, no fall from grace. Not even Satan can pluck you out of his hand. That's our security. We're in Christ. Christ is in God. And Christ is in me. That excites me. And that positionally, we're caught up with the Trinity. And God is supreme. No longer me living my own life and everything revolving around me. But now it's about God and my life revolving around him. The trying, the working, the struggling will never make us holy. But this reality will. Let it sink in that we are in Christ. Christ is in me. And that means he can live his life out through me. And my role is just to rest and relax and allow his almighty power to do that. But then secondly in this section, allowing Christ's life to be lived out in us. What happened when you first came to Jesus? The Bible talks about repenting and believing. Repenting is agreeing with God's assessment of our sinful disobedience and turning around. And then it's about turning around and coming back to God and then putting our trust and our faith in Jesus who has done everything in defeating sin on the cross this step brings forgiveness and God promises to remember our sins no more do you remember those lovely verses in uh, Psalm 103 where it talks about God uh, moving our sin from the, as far as the east is from the west he will never remember our sins our transgressions anymore east and west never Never will those things meet. 
And then he says something absolutely incredible. He says he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. Listen to Paul writing to the Romans in chapter 5 and verse 17. He says this, and this is from the Phillips version. It says, For if one man's offence, Adam, meant that people should be slaves to death all their lives, it's a far greater thing that through another man, Jesus Christ, people by their acceptance of his more than sufficient grace and righteousness should live all their lives like kings or queens. Live like royalty. Now on, from now on, God looks at us through the filter of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a gift of grace. We're children of God, precious and special. More than sinners saved by grace, we're actually caught up into the reality of being part of God's family. Children of God. And then thirdly, in this little section, Paul writes about the power and the triumph of the resurrection. We're raised with Christ, he says in verse 1. Holiness is a gift from God who calls us to live in all that is provided. Temptations are certain. Falls may occur. You may mess up. But he's made provision for that. Remember those words John writes in his first letter? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now in Christ... We can depend on the resurrection power. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. And his victory is ours. It's not about my feelings. not about how I'm feeling about this. It's what God has said. You have been raised with Christ. Great words. Let's move to the second section in this passage and verses 5 onwards. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life that you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of such things. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator here there is no gentile or jew circumcised or uncircumcised barbarian or scythian slave or free but christ is all and is in all so paul's talking here about secondly about a clothing exchange or as i put it god's swap shop Ever practical, Paul moves on from theology to encouragement. Chris reminded us this, of this last week. It's always the pattern of the letters of Paul that he talks about theology. Ephesians would be a very good example of this, where you get the first three chapters on theology and then the practical outworking those things in the four to six chapters, four, five and six. So here Paul is going to be very practical. And he says, first of all, in verse five, put to death. Put to death in the old versions came out as mortify, uh, not just some ascetic discipline or some self-denial, but actually Paul is demanding an uncompromising stance against sinful practice in our lives. There's a twofold twist here because Paul has already said in verse 3, you have died, and now he's saying we are to die, we are to put to death. 
That's an absolute, the reality is it's actually happened positionally and we have died and sin has no longer claim over us but the reality has to be worked out day by day in our daily living. Herbert Carson once wrote, by constantly turning our back on self and living in submission to Christ, we must realise experimentally what from the viewpoint of eternity is an established fact. So it's an established fact. We have died. And now Paul is saying, you've got to keep on dying day by day. What well, how did this happen? How do we do our play our part in bringing those things to God, the things that hinder? The writer to the Hebrews reminded us in chapter 12 and verse 1 that therefore, because we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we're to throw off everything that hinders and the sin which trips us up and entangles us and we're to run with perseverance, the race marked before us. I've always loved the comment of the little girl who when asked about uh, what she does when temptation comes to her life, she says, I just send Jesus to the door to answer it. It's about submitting daily submitting to Jesus, owning his right, right to reign in my life and to lead my life. It's about leaving with him the things that often hinder and trip me up. And it's about submitting to him and listening to those nudges of God's spirit when he prompts us about our behaviour. I wonder if you've ever, uh, when you've been driving on a motorway perhaps, and you've come to the, you've strayed to the edge of the, of the carriageway, you know what happens? You get that noise warning from the edge. It's called a rumble strip and particularly useful if you're in danger of dozing off at the wheel. I wonder when the Holy Spirit comes and gives us that nudge, that poke in the ribs, and he says to us, you're getting close to the edge. Do we listen to him? That's the time when perhaps a, a good friend could pray with us and help us in that situation too. Remind yourself, as I'm seeking to do as well, that as we wake up in the morning, that we are dead to our old ways and invite Christ again to live his resurrection life out through us so that we don't put on those filthy rags again. I was thinking about the parable of the, the lost son that Jesus told. And uh, I just imagine this, this boy coming home. He's, uh, he's been in all sorts of trouble. He's been working in a pigsty and he's uh, been travelling on the road and he's smelly and he's dirty and he's filthy. And uh, when his father greets him at the, at the gate, I often think these father's first words were, boy, don't you smell. Um, but actually he's welcomed home. He's given a party, he's given new clothes, he's given a bath, he's given shoes, he's given a ring. And then a fabulous party at the end of it. But next morning, how strange would it be if the boy got up and demanded back those filthy rags, those smelly rags that he'd come home in. He doesn't. They've already been burnt. They've already got rid of. And the old sinful clothes that Paul mentions in verses 5 to 10 are common for the human race. Paul says they were the behaviours we used to do when we were, we were outside of Christ. We did them like everybody else, verse 7. However, these things offend our holy God. And judgment is coming on them, he says in verse 6. Now, he says, we're in Christ. We've been called to put away those things and to put on the new clothes, the righteousness. We've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We live in Christ's victory. And Paul groups the sinful behavior into two groups. In verses 5 and 6, he talks about sexual sins. And the Greek word used here is pornea, from which we get the word, our word, pornography. 
And then there in verses 8 and 9, there are the sins of the lips, which of course flow from an attitude of heart and mind. Mind your mouth, Paul says in verse 11. He reminds us that these sins do not discriminate also by race or culture, and we need to know the thrill of Jesus being all in all. I'm reminded of a time when uh, a friend came to me uh, in a previous church we attended and asked if I would pray for him. And uh, I sat down with him. We talked about what his problem was. And he says, I really have a problem because in those days, this is going back a while, he used to, uh, a number of people used to watch Baywatch. And uh, he said, I always get lustful thoughts when I, when I watch Baywatch. And uh, my response to him was quite simple. If that's a problem to you, just turn your TV off. That's the obvious thing to do. It's part of putting off the old clothes, if you like. Or if you have a problem with gambling, perhaps, then turn off and don't mess with the gambling apps on your smartphone. Delete them. You have to take your part. We have to do our part in putting to death and mortifying these things. But then Paul goes on in verse 12. He says, put on your new clothes. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Put on those new clothes. It's a brilliant verse. And it's such a contrast to verses 5 to 11. Yet how can this be? How can we live like this? Surely it's about bowing the knee to Jesus on a daily basis, of spending time with him in his word, of spending time in devotion and in prayer, of allowing his word to instruct us and inform our lives and allowing his life to be lived out through us. And every day, as we commit our lives afresh to Jesus, we ask him to live his life through us. It was the old uh, missionary pioneer, Hudson Taylor, who used to talk about the secret of an exchange life, exchanging the old clothes for the new clothes that Jesus brings, the new behaviours. But then verses 12 to 14, if you look at them, those words there about compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, aren't they all the sort of things that we would actually say are the attributes of Jesus? That's him living his life in through me so that he may be seen and we grow to maturity. But what a church we would be if we were a church of people that were living out these things when the beauty of Jesus was allowed to shine through our lives. We would be unstoppable, a powerful witness to the world. One of my favourite songs from a way back, actually, by Graham Kendrick was May the Beauty of Jesus Fill My Life. Three times that refrain comes in the last verse. May the beauty of Jesus fill my life. Perfect beauty of Jesus. Fill my thoughts, my words, my deeds, my all I give in adoration. And I think he's captured it so well. A colleague of mine, when I was working in Scripture Union, used to do some children's work in Sheffield. And he used to work on a particularly difficult housing estate and uh, one visit that he paid, a friend of his pointed out a house which was really rough. Its front garden was strewn with rubbish. The house desperately needed a lick of paint. He was told that there were always arguments from that house, swearing, shouting, threats. Sometime later, some months later, maybe a year or so later, he visited that street again. And his friend said, things are very different over there now. 
The house has been repainted. The garden has been cleared. There's no more rows. It, there must be new occupants in the house, said his friend. But my friend knew better. He knew that that family had come to put their faith and their trust in Jesus. And what he'd done began to change things and transform them so that, that the transformation inside began to show on the outside too. So the new reality, verses 1 to 4. God's swap shop in verses 5 to 14. And then the final section, verse 15 to 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with the wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I think here we find the marks of a holy church. What does holiness look like in the context of a church family? It's Warren Wearsby who comments that Paul has exhorted his readers to put off the grave clothes of sin and the old life and now put on the grace clothes of holiness and new life in Christ. Now he turns his attention to the church. We know that he's, he's talking to the church here because the grammar here all becomes plural. The nouns and the verbs become plural. He's talking to the group of the people of the Christians at Colossae. And what marks him out as the people of God? Four marks he mentions here. The first one in verse 15 is peace. He says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. For all you uh, cricket fans, and maybe you've been watching the test match today. I don't think England have been doing too well this morning. Um, he says, um, let the peace of God be the umpire in your hearts. That's what the word could be translated as. An umpire is the one who makes the final decisions. Is it out or is he, this person in? Is it not out or is it out? And Paul says, let the peace of God so rule in your hearts so that you know the direction that you should be moving forward in. It makes the decisions. It helps you make the decisions of how to move, a good indication of direction. And then he talks about the word of God in verse 10. Verse 16, the message of God is crucial for our growth and for our development and our discipleship. We need to be people of the word. Are we reading it daily on a daily basis? Are we memorizing it? And meditating on its truth. I think it's Ruth, wavy arms Ruth, as she calls herself, who's um, actually learning some psalms at the moment. That's brilliant. And it's useful to memorize scripture, but we need to grow in it. We need to feast on it day by day. I love it when I, when I used to work for a scripture union one year, we, had the, uh, we celebrated the 100th anniversary of our Bible reading notes. And one local radio station in the northeast of England interviewed an elderly lady. And they asked her, what was the best thing about Scripture Union Bible reading notes? And she replied, they keep you regular. Well, I think I know what she meant. And then thirdly, worship in verse 16. Great worship always flows from a grateful heart. Note verse 15, 16 and 17, Paul talks about being grateful. The attitude of gratitude. Note that it's both public and private worship that he's talking about here. He talks about in our hearts and in the congregation of God's people. Do you listen to worship music? 
I want to put a plug in here for the uh, Waking with Jesus group that Pam Narin runs. Every morning, another song pops into my inbox and it really blesses me. Just email Pam if you want to find out some more details of that. Sometimes it's old hymns and songs. Sometimes they're new ones. But Paul mentions the old, the psalms and the hymns and the songs given by the Spirit, which I take it he means the new songs. There's a mixture. We need the both. There can't be a, a, a worship wars thing going on here. It's both that we need. And we worship and song, singing is very much part of that worship. So often said that, the, that Christian people are always marked out by the fact they're a singing people and a joyful people. And then finally, he talks about being motivated in verse 17. He talks about our ambition should always be to please him in everything we say and that we do. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We've got to be a people who are motivated by the honour and glory of Christ. Do we, do we ask ourselves those questions? Is this action I'm going to take, does it glorify him? Does it honour him? Does it give us uh, give blessing to others as a result of us taking that action? You know, when the church is like this, when it operates in this holiness of God, which will be seen through them and around them and through that, this thankful people, when we live like this, the beauty of Jesus will be seen in us. And above all, as verse 14 says, and particularly on this day of St. Valentine's Day, when over all these virtues put on love, which is binds them together, all together, in perfect unity. Put on love. Love is the glue, the cement, Paul says, which holds the family of God together. <clears throat> John records uh, Jesus as saying in one of his final things to his disciples, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Is that which marks us out? Some questions for you as we conclude. Are you enjoying your new reality of being in Christ? Have you laid aside the rags of your old life and are you enjoying your new clothes of Christ's life in you? And as a church, are we marked by peace, the word, worship? Are we a thankful people? And does Christ's love bind us all together? Shall we pray? Father God, we thank you. Thank you for your precious word. Thank you for these glorious words that Paul writes about holiness. And we pray that you'd make us more and more, day by day, more and more like Jesus. We pray that we will put to death on a daily basis those things which hold us up and hinder us. And that we'll uh, put on those new clothes afresh, day by day. The life, the righteousness, the love and the holiness of Jesus that it may be displayed through our lives. Put it off putting on. May we have that glorious reality of growing in discipleship, growing like our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to uh, conclude our service today by singing that great uh, song, uh, The Potter's Hand, and it says that we're captured by his holy calling. Are we captured by his holy calling? Are we being set apart by him, the potter's hand? Thank you.